Welcome to the So Many Wrong Notes podcast. I'm Jeanette Fang, and I'm here with my co-host, Francis Yoon. So, Franny, it's been a long time, eh? It's been a long time. Hello, everyone. So, what have you been up to? How was your summer? <laughs> my summer has been great. Well, it's been not that great because we've been kind of neglecting the audience here. Yeah. So many wrong notes. We had to take a longer break than we expected. But we're glad to be back and hope you guys are having fun listening to us. But I had a great summer. Yeah. And I mean, that's kind of how it goes, right? We're musicians. Yeah. So our busiest time is the summer. Unfortunately, we didn't get to do this regular recording, but we have lots in the bank. We have lots in the bank and we're also kind of revising how this show is going to sound and hopefully you'll appreciate it. We're but... getting a clue. <laughs> I think. Sort of. Sort of. <laughs> but yeah, my summer was great. I teach at this uh, camp. It's called Friends Music Camp. And kids were great. I had a lot of fun. Um, I played a lot of piano this summer, actually, oh, for this yeah. camp. Which was very weird. I don't know what it was, but I decided that uh, I wanted to play some pieces. And I did. So I played... A Liszt Wagner transcription, the Liebestode. Oh, nice. Which was a lot of fun to play. And then I had to play... I had to play. I don't have to play anything. But I wanted <laughs> to play uh, Jacob TV's Body of Your Dreams, which... Oh, yeah. How did that go? Oh, that one... I mean, look. Let's let's be honest here. If you play Body of Your Dreams, the tape does everything. You want to play it well, of course, but... Yeah. If you just follow what is there, you're good. Yeah. So... That went very well. I mean, I made a couple of stupid mistakes in that, but you know what? I played it for an audience of teens, and you know how it ends with sort of like a sexy noise from from a woman going, Oh, wow! Yeah, yep, yep. (laughs) (laughs) Just that alone uh, probably made that performance a hit. But yeah, so that camp was good, and then I bought a harpsichord this summer. Oh, yeah. Did you name it yet? No, it still has no name. But I got a really good deal on it. And that was also very good because I've started a new chapter in my life. Wait, okay. So um, what constitutes a good deal on a harpsichord? (laughs) I mean, honestly, I have no idea what the price point is. Well, for what I got, which was uh, someone built this instrument out of a kit. it's A DIY harpsichord kit? Yeah, those are very common. What? Yeah. I didn't know that. Yeah, those oh. are very common. Okay. Um, and I bought it for $300. What? Yeah. So it doesn't even matter if you don't know what a good deal point is for a harpsichord. Yeah, yeah. $300 is a pretty darn good deal. And it's also not like a lot of these kid instruments can be a piece of crap. But, yeah, you know, <laughs> this one was pretty good for what it is. And yeah. $300 is, is a good deal. You can't go wrong with that. That's like uh, the price of a good microphone. Yeah, yeah. How much does a harpsichord go for? Just uh, Again, that's a hard question to answer, and I think that's a question we're going to have to talk about at a later time. It's Just because it's, no, well, it's because <laughs> no, I'm saying that because okay. the price points vary so widely. Okay. Depending on whether you're buying from someone who owns whether you're commissioning an instrument, whether right. 
the person selling you knows what they have or not is is it varies widely. See, the, the biggest point with with buying instruments, at least early music instruments, is that you have to get rid of the idea of standardization. Because mm -hmm. you know every you know what to expect to spend on a piano, and you know you know that most people know what they have because they're standardized. Right, so I am too much wanting that context. Yes. And well, okay, ba basically, you know, the Dowd that's in our yeah. Garfield, um, from a renowned, from somebody like that, how much would that harpsichord be? Yours? I mean, I think I yeah. could, the, I think that I could, someone would buy it for 30, maybe 40,000. Okay, all right. Yeah, that, I just, I, I really just wanted that frame of reference because I'm nosy like that. But that's also, again, you have to take into consideration, you know, double manual, which is your doubt, versus single manual, versus is it a 17th century-esque instrument? Is it an 18th century-esque instrument? Oh, uh, wait, how much is it? Like, double manual is double the price? It's not necessarily even double the price, but okay. it, it, again, depends on the instrument. So that's what I'm trying to say. It's like there's no standardization. Okay. Okay, so it's very customized. It's very customized. I mean, the most expensive you'll probably ever spend is like 60000 Okay. Um, That's probably on the high end. I've heard of people getting good instruments for as low as 1000 Or 300 Or 300 but mine is not, let, let's say, a good instrument. It's not a good concert instrument. It's a good practice instrument, which ah. is what I need because... I'm starting a new chapter in my life, or that Ooh, has already tell. started. <laughs> what is this new chapter? <laughs> I am, after thinking that I will never be a student again, I've decided mm -hmm. to become a student again. And this time, I am a student of historical performance, getting a graduate diploma mm -hmm. at, at some no-name school in New York. I don't... I don't <laughs> I don't remember. You're just like me. Oh, I just went to school in New York. Yeah. Like, where? <laughs> um, This place in Lincoln Center. Yeah. Oh, it starts with a J, maybe. I'll just I, own it. You're at Juilliard. I am at. I am now at Juilliard, so. <laughs> I'm, I'm hoping you'll have a better time there than I do. Yeah, I think, I mean, it helps that I'm as old as I am. Yes. I, I don't think. <laughs> I could have handled that when I was 18, like you were, so... Well, I mean, I but. thought I would be ready for it because of pre-college, but I wasn't by far. Mm. But, but it sounds like you have a good teacher. I think that's the most important thing. Yeah, and it, the program is different in that it's a little bit less focused on just private teaching, and it's really more about playing with your entire department, you know? Yeah. So, yeah, of course I get private lessons, and the teacher I have is great. Um, and I appreciate that a lot, but it's also like pretty much everybody in the department is going to end up playing together, either in chamber music or in Juilliard 415, which is the, uh, HP orchestra there. HP? I think no. Hewlett Packard. <laughs> Sorry. Well, you have to get used to HP, meaning historical performance. That's what we call it. Okay. Not Harry Potter? Not Harry Potter, unfortunately, but right. maybe one day. Well, so yeah, that's exciting. Yeah, it and is exciting. It's keeping me busy. Yeah. Which is good. Um, but it also leads to days like today where I just could you gotta not... got to recuperate. Well, yeah, but I, I mean, I could not get up. 
I slept all day. It was one of those days where I just had to catch up on sleep. So Do you have a headache now? Because that usually happens to me. No, I don't have a headache. No, actually. I feel actually pretty good, other than a little groggy. But I feel good. All right. All right. But enough about me. How was your summer? Oh, my summer was great. Um, Exhausting. It started off with us going to Scotland for a tour, so... It was exhausting. I mean, Scotland is great and Scotland is awesome, but it's also very cold and it was tiring to start off a long 10-week season with international travel. Yeah. But um, I think I had a better handle on this summer than I did last summer in terms of workload and balance. So that was a little more sane. I got some bucket list pieces off, which I was happy oh, Like I, nice. I got to play Trout Quintet. I've never played that before with Aislinn, Noski, and... And um, Anthony Manzel. And that was awesome. And I got to do Brahms Quintet. I mean, I played that a long time ago, but never really. You know, as students, you just kind of like play it in a sight reading context. <laughs> and then you're done. So th- it was fun to actually work on that seriously. Yeah. And I got to do a little traveling after the summer was over. So when everybody's starting school and when everybody's starting their stuff, we finally get to go on a break. <laughs> so I um, went to Michigan to play a concert, and then I went to New Jersey, and I bonded with my little niece. Oh, that's and nice. That was, huh. You know, it's funny, like, uh, seeing my niece, one, she's delightful, but it confirms to me that I don't want kids. Not, you know, like, it's just this 24-7, like, you just can't, because it's not like you can just kind of, like, tell her to read a book or something. You have to no. play with her constantly. Like, it's just like, because she's just a, she's, she's such an active intelligent curious thing that like everything she's like piecing together and so you have to watch your words you have to like make sure that she's like not absorbing wrong information like uh i was trying on some dresses and um she saw my tattoo on my back and she goes you have a stamp (laughs) (laughs) i'm just like yes i do have a stamp and the question going through my head was do i say it's just totally removable like you can just kind of wash it off or do I say, oh, this was very painful to get. So, you know, your mom doesn't have one. So you don't want one. <laughs> it's called a tattoo. And I made the mistake of telling her it's called a tattoo. Wait, why I, was I, that a mistake to call it a tattoo? I don't know. I, I, maybe it's not a mistake. But I just kind of assume that things I say are a mistake. <laughs> <laughs> I know. Yeah, it can, be, it can be a little freaky with kids that age. Yeah, and then they're so wriggly. They're so wriggly and active. I, I bought her a couple things to play with. And one was like a stencil set. And she had these little coloring pencils. And then she starts to play this game in which she will jump up and throw a bunch of things in the air and then fall on me. That was her game. So she's just like falling on me, but she's holding this pencil. So I'm freaking out. And then I'm freaking out that she'll hit something hard. And then she'll stab herself in the eye with a pencil. And I'm just like trying to block every hard surface. And (laughs) yeah, this went on forever. Yeah, I mean, having had to watch kids that age before... (laughs) That's not fun. But here's the here's the one difference between non-parents and parents that I've noticed over the years, like watching uh-huh. my friends' kids, is that we as non-parents react to like like potential danger more dramatically than actual parents do. Like it's oh, hilarious. Yeah. Like if if I see a kid fall, my first reaction is, "Oh my god, can I like I have yeah. to pick him up or something?" And it's so hilarious because parents are mostly like, "Is he bleeding?" No. Okay, he's fine. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, because they're like, oh, he'll be okay. They know it's not the yeah. end of the world. 
I mean, I guess that's a survival mechanism. You can't be like freaking out every second of your life. Uh, no, but... I mean, yeah, you can't be freaking out, but it's also like since they've been around the kid for I don't know since birth, they <laughs> they just <laughs> they just have a better sense of when the kids actually hurt. Yeah, well, the thing that I realize is kids don't necessarily register to hurt right away. Like no. they'll get hurt, and then you think, oh, they're okay, they're not crying, and then like five seconds later. <laughs> but normally that could also be a reaction to how you reacted is what i've That's learned true yeah this is too much psychology yeah kids this is why most parents go oh they're okay because if you modeled oh they're okay they they think they're okay but if they like even see in your face how shocked you were yeah they react the way you want them to yeah anyways well i don't know parenting but you know what luckily we don't have a parenting podcast <laughs> It'd be that would be terrible. <laughs> so, anyways, let me try to think of a segue. Uh, basically, if you think with a lot of anxiety, you're not gonna get anywhere, and that sort of mentality pops up a lot in what we want to talk about, which is nerves. Being performers, uh, we have this problem of getting nervous because we have to perform, and it can be debilitating. It can be a lot of anxiety because we're supposed to be on all the time. So, Franny, I wanted to ask you. Do you get nervous? No, I never get nervous. I'm perfect. I have no anxiety whatsoever. Yeah, no, that's not true. <laughs> I was going to say, are you a robo-franny? A robo-franny. No, I am probably one of the most nervous people you'll ever meet. I get nervous constantly. The thing is, with you, though, you're so kind of calm in your demeanor that seeing you nervous would be surprising to me. It would just kind of not be the classic symptoms of being nervous, I think. Like, well, tell me what you think the classic symptoms are and tell me how you think I show nervousness, because I'm curious now. Well, I would say that uh, classic symptoms of nervous is sort of like pacing back and forth rapidly, um, can't sit still, like freaking out over little things, over routines backstage that aren't perfect, freaking out over who's in the audience, going over things in your head so that you're kind of flustered all over like you can't concentrate on anything hmm. and i don't think i've seen you like that but i also haven't seen you backstage a lot so. well have you do you think you've seen me nervous and how do you think i show nervousness honestly i, I don't know if i've seen you nervous i mean i've definitely talked with you after things yeah and i know kind of what goes on in your head which kind of resemble nervousness and anxiety, but I've never physically seen what you're like when you're nervous. Because I do do all of that. I pace back and forth. I, you know. Yeah? I, do you yeah. have a ritual? You know, for a long time, I did have this ritual, which was the day of a performance, I had to eat oatmeal. I had to oatmeal. get... Yeah, I don't know why. Huh. I I had to get dressed at a certain time like a certain time level before the performance. Oh. Yeah. Things like that. But a lot of those rituals frankly died for me when I was a staff accompanist and I was playing recitals constantly. I just well, didn't did have the luxury. Well, did you get nervous for those? Um, initially I did, but after a while I didn't, which actually led to another problem in in that it was for me staff accompanying became sort of like a job and a performance almost didn't matter in a sense. It was just part of the job. Oh, so when you stopped being nervous for performances, it seemed to mean less to you, right? It not only meant less, but it also, I think it kind of deadened me, if that makes sense. 
No, it totally makes sense. Yeah, it, uh, it was just like, uh, just play and just go home. So it, yeah. was, it was almost like I wasn't performing. It was definitely robo-Francis there. Yeah. When people talk about being nervous, they talk a lot about calming down. Like, just calm down. Just try not to be anxious. Try to turn that off. As if nerves is a bad thing. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'd like to have us try reframing that. I don't think nerves is a bad thing at all. I think it's a tool that we can use. I think that in many cases, it can easily be switched into excitement. But I think nerves itself is a good sign because it means you really care. Absolutely. And I think that's kind of exemplified by your, by your story. Yeah. I mean, Here's the thing. You're nervous. For me, anyway, I tend to be more nervous before going on than when I'm on stage. It's because we don't know what's going to happen. But we are nervous because we care so much about what's going to happen. So I think it makes no sense to deny your nerves. It makes no sense to, to say the opposite of what you're actually feeling. I think if you acknowledge your nervousness, things get better because you can then deal with it, right? It's reframing the idea of saying, okay, you're nervous, not because you're a bad performer or you're unprepared or, you know, all these various other reasons, right? You're you're nervous because you want to do a good job. So instead of focusing on getting rid of nervousness, I think you're right. You just have to redirect it and, and go, I'm nervous because I want to be able to do this. So you focus on what you want to be able to do on stage. Yeah, uh, a lot of people we know take beta blockers in order to get rid of the crippling nervousness or anxiety that comes before performance. In some cases, it does take away the jitters, like a bow arm, and I can understand that. But in most cases, like I would never take a beta blocker because I need that adrenaline. Like I love it. And the nerves to me are just a sign of excitement. If I wasn't amped up for this performance, if I wasn't feeling those nerves, I would be really worried. <laughs> I think we are told a lot not to be nervous and we're nothing to worry about or not to be anxious. And I think that nerves really help. One, you do have to think about it not so much as anxiety, but as something you can control. Like you can control your nerves. You can control your excitement. I mean, it amps everything up to another level. And I think that's really key for performance. What do you mean it amps something up to another level? I'm not quite... Well, think about how you play in rehearsals versus how you play in performance. Mm. And and what is the difference? It's that you are nervous <laughs> for the actual thing. But there's a certain level of excitement. There's just like this giving everything in performance that I think comes from the adrenaline of nerves. And I think it comes from the excitement that you feel for that day. Yeah. I don't know the scientific terms. Sorry. No, it's, I mean, I I buy that up to a point because there are some okay. people who get so nervous that they can't perform. Well, yeah, so, and that's the sort of thing I want to talk about in terms of the difference between being nervous and having debilitating anxiety. Like, when you get so nervous you can't perform, it's because you're afraid of something. That's that's what I'm, I'm guessing is, like, you're so afraid of what people in the audience will think or how you're sure that it's going to be a failure or something like that. Like, that prevents you from doing it. Um, yes, but I guess what my, my biggest issue right now is, how are we going to make that distinction? Because the nerves can start the same way. Like, I can be nervous before a performance, and 
either I somehow still perform or I just don't. Well, I think it's pretty simple in terms of like the distinction between debilitating nervousness and excitement. When you're so nervous you can't play, it's because you're being plagued by negative thoughts and not so much of what you can do. You're, you're just kind of thinking about past failures. You're thinking about what has happened before and the pressure is on you to make this good and that becomes too overwhelming because you're focused on what didn't work. You're focused on what people are saying that is bad about you. Obviously, this might not be true for everyone. It's just kind of my observation and experiences. I think that if you shift the energy you feel from being nervous into thinking about what you can actually control because you can control anything. I mean, you are yourself. You can control everything, no matter what you think. You just take control of your thoughts in that way. You can't turn off nervousness, but you can make it positive. You can actually say, I will show you how well I play or something. Like you can just think in terms of what you can prove mm -hmm. instead of thinking in terms of what is inevitably going to happen. I Which, see. Because you don't know. No. Yeah. Well, I guess, that. I mean, it makes sense now. It's just a matter of reframing how you think. Exactly. I was listening to the Art of Charm podcast, and they were talking about sports psychology mm -hmm. and how you can reframe things in sports psychology, like kind of the use of rituals, but also the use of how to psych yourself up. And it was featuring Daniel McGinn. He's a, I think, professor at Harvard, and he had written a book called Psyched Up. And it was about how you can reframe your mind to actually be more confident and to increase your chances of success. And a lot of things just made sense in terms of performance. And you know what? He actually cites a class at Juilliard in that book. Oh, yeah? Because, you know, you, every student has to do so many auditions and high-pressure kind of mm -hmm. performances. And what they did was they had those students perform in settings that were very not ideal. I think an example was maybe the piano is missing keys or like people start standing up and making a ruckus during the performance or you're told that you are only playing for a few people and you end up playing for like a whole panel and just small things that throw a lot of people off. Yeah. They kind of got people used to that. And you know, I don't remember that class, so maybe it was a new option. Do you know of any? I don't like know of any class like that right now, but okay. I'm sure it happened and it might still be happening. I don't know. But, oh, anyway. but the whole reason I brought up Daniel McGinn is because was because he did a lot of research into what people were doing in terms of sports psychology. And studies showed that simply saying, I'm so excited instead of I'm so nervous, made one group play just play better than the other. It was just that simple change of wording, um, which I think is like something we shouldn't poo-poo. It seems kind of dumb, like saying a mantra. But it, if you say a positive mantra, it really does have an effect, I think. Yeah, I totally agree with that. I mean, a personal example that I can use is my audition for Juilliard last year. Yeah? Where I was super nervous. Right. Yeah, and I think literally what I said to myself was, yeah, you're nervous because you care. So sh I didn't say I'm excited. I, I think I said something like, show them what you got. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. You just have to be over-exaggerated in your thinking in yeah. terms of, like, I'm kick-ass and I will show you what I'm capable of. Like, I am awesome. Even so you don't believe it, like, fake it till you Well, know. again, I don't say I'm kick-ass or I'm awesome. I think, for me, that just doesn't work. For me, it's what works... It's too far. It's yeah. too far. For me, what works is, I think the two things, and it's so funny because I've said this to a lot of the kids that I taught in the summer camp, mm -hmm. the two things I say 
is focus on the job you have to do, right? Mm -hmm. And that job, the second thing, is to tell the story. Mm -hmm. That for me, what helped was to say, I'm telling a story by playing something rather than I have to get all of these things correct, right? Oh, if I miss this note, everything is over. Or if something doesn't come out as well as I would like, you know, I would yeah. I would think that things were over. But no, now I'm thinking, no, tell the story. There's the overarching narrative. You've prepared mm-hmm. in practice. That's how you learn the story. And now you have to tell the story. And I love that because that, that takes the focus away from you it takes the focus away from like all we're so self-absorbed and we're so worried about our own problems and failures you're focusing on what's important exactly it also acknowledges the audience as well right because sometimes you can use nerves to focus on yourself because the nerves Mm -hmm. are about how you're feeling and how you think you're gonna do but if you think for me and what helped was to just go okay People are here to listen to me, and they're here to listen to a story. You've spent all this time learning the story, and then part of your other practice is to see how it comes across to other people. And now here's the point where you can finally combine the two and just tell the story. Right. And if you think about it, like right now, we sometimes stumble on our words and say things that we don't really mean to say, but we don't like shit our pants when that happens. Even when we're telling a story face to face, if we misspeak, we just go, oh, wait, wait, wait. No, I meant this, right? Mm -hmm. But we don't shit our pants over it. And I Mm -hmm. think it's sort of the same thing that if you missed a note, well, it doesn't ruin the story. Right. The meaning will get across if you're invested in that being the most important thing. Exactly. And I agree with that completely. And I think the less we think about ourselves in performance, the more successful we are. I mean, really, like, ourselves should never come into the picture when we're performing. Like, that self-consciousness is so debilitating. Because so many bad things have happened just because you start thinking, oh, oh, wait, did I, did I do that right? And then all of a sudden you just, like, shit on the piano. Because it doesn't make sense. Yeah. Like, you're out of the zone. To kind of go back to amping yourself up, there are a couple of things that I think might be helpful for people that... I found interesting strategies. So um, McGinn talked about a lacrosse player at West Point. They tried this thing with him where he would just listen to an audio of all his best plays. Mm. A success highlight reel. And he was told to listen to it before bed, when he woke up, before games. Like just relive your best moments. And, and basically they were trying to increase confidence and therefore increase the chances of it happening again. And I think that's brilliant. I think we need that. It is in our nature, you and I, to be Mm self-deprecating and to kind of downplay our success. And I think that there is no place for that kind of self-deprecation when we're psyching ourselves up to perform. Yeah, I mean, I don't know. See, this is... (laughs) (laughs) I don't know if psyching myself up that way works for me. It might work for you. Yeah. But for me, I think the more I think not about how brilliant I am, but about how how I want to communicate is more important. I just find myself playing better when I don't think about myself. When I realize that what I'm doing is something larger than myself. Look, I'm not thinking that I'm super brilliant when I get on stage. I think what is the point of this exercise for a lot of people is that 
you get the confidence to think you're capable of it mm. again because you kind of know that you've done it before. And so you kind of get that out of the way. It's just like, oh, of course I can do this. And hopefully yourself will not be in the forefront of your mind like, oh, I have to show off and oh, everyone has to admire me. But it's just sort of like taking that doubt out. But it could serve as a different purpose as well. I just think it's an interesting strategy. No, I think it's a brilliant strategy. It might also be helpful for like younger kids who are like getting used to performing for the first time. Because I'm also thinking of this issue as as a teacher as well. It's like, what can I say to kids to get them to just stop focusing? Because for me, debilitating nerves is when you're focused too much on yourself and not on telling the story, like I said. And so that this is why I kept reiterating to kids, tell the story. Just focus on what the story is. And that's what you worry about. But it might also be good to tell people, you know, you've done this before. You can do it. You can do it. And so, yeah, that might not necessarily work for me, but that's probably because I'm old and jaded. But for younger people, it might work very well. Well, have you noticed when you were young, um, because I've been competing since I was seven. So I have noticed myself getting more and more nervous as I get older. I don't know if that's been your experience, but I feel like as a kid, you kind of just don't question what you can or cannot do. You just mm, do that's true. Uh, well, I guess when you're seven, not necessarily you don't, but when you're 13, that's a When you're at that self-conscious story. age. Yes. Yeah, 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 no, that's true. And you have your first failure. Like, everyone fails. People fail all the times. And the most successful people probably failed twice as much as you have, or if not more. They've just done a lot more. So their chances of success, you know, the proportions of it are just greater. I mean, everybody fails, and when you have that first failure, you kind of think that, oh, I can't do it anymore. That's right. I think that's what you're talking about, right? Those people who experience that it's not going to go right all the time for mm-hmm. the first time. Yeah, and yeah, and that, that can be very debilitating, yeah. But which is also, I mean, I feel like I went through that experience of just going, oh, I failed so much, you know, that at a certain point I gave up. I think we all have that. Yeah. I mean, every performer has had the fear and the thoughts that they can't play well anymore. <laughs> or that maybe like they will never get to that place again. Or they will never get to that place at all. And I think that it's important for all performers to know that everybody has that fear. Even the the ones you admire, they have that fear. I mean, yeah. I don't think there's a single performer who doesn't get so nervous and worried i mean there's stories of martha argerich like just obsessing post recital over if she was good or not like Mm -hmm. so i think people shouldn't give so much importance to that or or maybe just like not focusing so much on like oh shoot i'm never gonna do well like oh yeah yeah listen to that exactly and my way into it was to not focus on on myself but what was your way into this well, I think your way is actually a really helpful and very ideal way to think about it. My way into not feeling, you know, but it's a little different because um, I would say that I've always just had the desire for the stage, I think more so than you. Mm-hmm. I think what I, I like on the stage is that I do lose myself and I lose those thoughts. I lose those self-consciousness. I've always just been so eager to play. I can't wait to step out there and play. So in a way, excitement kind of supersedes any sort of thought or any sort of fear. And yeah, if I'm not prepared, if I feel scared about what might happen, I think just the thrill of what could happen 
I still have hope. I still have enough hope that it's it could go either way. Like it's still Sterling. It's taking a risk. It's that small percentage of times when it's actually gone the way I wanted it to versus the high percentage of failures I've had still is enough and is still stronger than the fear of failure. There's been lots of times when I've been extremely self-loathing and extremely negative. But when it comes time to perform, I just get angry. And it was kind of an active decision to be angry and not defeatist. And I think this is behind why like sports people trash talk other teams because that is an angry energy that you can use to your advantage. But it's complicated. Anger is complicated. Like it's not it's not a dependable emotion. It's not a healthy one. But my anger was just like, how dare you think this of me that I can't do this? I will do this and I'll show you. Like I I will kick ass. Like you know, it's just like really over the top kind of things. But I guess maybe I'm an over the top kind of person, so that works for me. I mean, yeah, I think the point is is that as great as it is to have strategies, I think what I've learned is you need to find the strategy that works best for you. Definitely. And for you is to get angry, is to be determined to show them what you got in like, I'm going to kick ass kind of way. And for me, it's just more of a narrative and just focusing on the task. But I think both of those are determination. Yes. There's a determination there that supersedes any insecurity. That's true. But there is one thing that I do do. (laughs) I just said do do. do. What is this podcast without... Without a without a shit joke. Um, also, what the fuck? Why am I swearing more than you this episode? I feel like you swear more than I do normally. You are? Yeah. I wasn't keeping tabs. Well, I just feel like you haven't said any bad words and I've said shit and fuck. I don't huh. know. Anyway. But Maybe here's... I'm not drunk enough. <laughs> I don't know my drink. It was so delicious, though. It looks delicious. I can't really yeah, drink anymore, by the way. We'll, we'll have to... Oh! Yeah. But um, anyway... There... Are you pregnant? Yes, Are you pregnant? I'm pregnant. You're the father. So sorry. <laughs> Abort. I fully endorse you aborting that baby now. Okay. You, okay. you, uh, there's that flap of skin that you told me about. It unleashed and it spored and it traveled all the way to New York and impregnated Ew. me. <laughs> which is flap a, skin. which is a great sci-fi movie that I would totally watch. Flap of skin? Well, the flap of skin that that some some monster or in this case you has that she can't control, and it like opens and it spores and the spores uh. like fly across the country impregnating men. Hmm. Wouldn't and then I eat them, right? I I, I don't know. Okay. That's just the concept. Anyway, there is one thing that I do do that is very. <laughs> <laughs> yes. <laughs> That is similar to your kind of, I'm going to kick ass. Yeah. Is someone showed me the benefit of the power pose, which is a yoga pose. And you look ridiculous, but I don't care at this point. I do it because it makes me You are a king. Well, you know what the power pose looks like. You stand with your... You have to show it to me. Well, I mean, this is an audio form, so you have to tell it. Sorry. Yeah. So you stand with your legs very much apart, and then you have your arms raised with your palms out to the sky, uh-huh. and you look up. And like that's Mufasa? Yeah, and that's called the power pose uh, in yoga. Yay. And I have to say, for me, it works. It really does make me feel powerful. 
I believe it. Yeah. I mean, this is kind of something like the last thing I did want to talk about nerves is is these physical things, mm-hmm. these physical rituals, um, because like you, you had several things that you did, like you put on clothes at a certain time before performance, you do this power pose. And those rituals are actually more important than we think they are. They're not just like little superstitious things. Right? Absolutely. And yeah, a lot of my rituals have disappeared, like eating oatmeal or, you know, putting on clothes at a certain time. But I right. think the big ritual that i need to do is the power pose and actually it was really funny in my juilliard audition Mm -hmm. right before i went in i actually snuck in to like the crook of a doorway so that no one would see me and (laughs) did the power pose in the door frame yay and i I, somebody walked in on you well no nobody walked in on me i don't know how i would have felt i think i i wouldn't care if someone walked in on me doing the power pose but I yeah. have to say that I was like super nervous before going in and I did the power pose and I was all smiles. Like awesome. it just really, I don't know what that thing does, but it really makes me feel good. Well, you know what my theory is? Yeah. Well, I mean, there's several theories, but the power pose itself, like outstretching your hands, kind of looking up, aligning your body, you're increasing your blood flow. And yeah. So of course you don't feel tight. You feel open, you feel loose, you feel limber, you feel ready. But I think another thing that physical things like that do is that they signal to your body and your brain to get ready. That's you know, right. There's a time. You have to be in the zone now. And it gets you paying attention to what you need to be doing. Yeah, absolutely. So what are some of your rituals? Do you have any rituals? Well, mine are not as healthy as a power pose because it usually is. Stepping away from the piano 10 minutes before and I'm looking at my music. And it's usually just the first few pages, but it's just that first few pages that are important to me. Like, once I get going, I feel okay. But it's just, like, that first few pages, just to, like, really know inside out what I'm doing and how that starts in the mood of it. Like, the mood of it is the thing that I'm focusing on. The, the mood. Atmosphere. Oh, I love yes. that. that okay. go- I mean, that because it's pretty much what you're doing is you're telling the story. You're reminding yourself of the story when you're thinking about yeah. mood. Most important to me is like, is this super convincing? And the focus on a day of performance or just like in practice or anything, but is, is this true? Like this color, like how am I going to really make sure this color is special or make sure this color really comes across? Just kind of going through my head, whether or not these things that I'm doing will actually make that come across and whether or not it's true. It's, it's sort of like when you're coming up with like the right word for something mm. and is this the right way to describe it and you know there's like a perfect way of describing it but you can't get there yet that's the way my mind is before i play i'm just like it's not right is it right like i need to get that right and i'm not satisfied that sort of focus helps because it kind of distracts me from any anxious thought and i think that's that's kind of the point i'm getting at is that like when you do something like those rituals help to distract you from negative thoughts because you're really just focusing at the task at hand yeah and i think if there's anything to take away from this it's to just say that yes you're nervous and yes you have some negative thoughts but that's okay realize that they're there but focus on what you have to do and whatever rituals you find to get your mind focused on that whether it be looking at your music (laughs) 10 minutes before or doing a power pose or just focusing like you said either on mood or what i say on on the story really really helps you when you're when you're up there Definitely. And you know yeah. what? People listening to you, whether they be audition panels or a large audience or whoever, your classmates, they tend to want you to do well. Yeah. 
more people want you to do well than you think. Yes. In fact, I would say the majority of people want you to do well. Like even audition panels or even competition judges, right? Where you feel the yeah. most exposed. They want you to do well. Yeah. I mean, why would they think... Exactly. Why would they not want you to do well, especially the panel? Yeah. The panel wants to be blown away. They want someone good up there. Yeah. I mean, that's the whole point of holding an audition. That's right. So I think reframing the thought of, oh my God, these audition panels look so scary into, no, they just want to hear good music. It's never good to ever think anyone is out to get you. Uh, once you go down that path, you're, you're in for a lot of trouble. So Franny, do you want to take a quick break? Sure. Um, mostly I want to have a smooth stop into going to pee because I really have to pee. That's fine. Okay. obsessed with this week oh god so many things (laughs) you know what i'm obsessed with right now what i don't know do tell me (laughs) it's a pregnant pause right here yeah um this is from lack of preparation um (laughs) (laughs) i I seriously knew what i was gonna say and then i totally forgot what it was um (laughs) So let's do it this way. Okay. Jeanette, what are you obsessed with this week? So many things. Okay. One, you should always name your spiders. Um, two, <laughs> what? A... So I had I had a book obsession. I had a um, a video obsession, a show obsession, and then just like little things. So I'll I'll just pick two. One of them is this show that uh, Scott and I started watching. It's called The Good Place. Have you heard of it? No. It's really funny. And I don't laugh a lot in comedies, but this one I was laughing a lot. It's just great. I mean, it's got Kristen Bell playing somebody who died uh-huh. and is in, quote unquote, the good place. And she's actually a horrible person. So she has to convince everybody that she's actually a good person so she can stay in heaven. Or They don't call it heaven, but the good place. So she doesn't get sent to the bad place. And it's kind of hilarious. Um, it's got Ted Danson as like the overseer of the good place. And it's smart, but it's also just, like, hilarious, the delivery and everything. Nice. Um, and then the second obsession I have is, there are these snacks from Trader Joe's. Yeah. I really want to talk about naming your spider, though. Let me talk about naming your spider. Because, um, you know, there's a plethora of spiders outside my apartment. Yeah. You know, I, I hate spiders, and I know they're good, and I just, like, viscerally cannot stand them. They're just so creepy. But I named one of them Larry. <laughs> and... I've just started liking Larry. I just started thinking it's really cute how he runs and hides into his little corner, his little crevice whenever I come outside and I can see his little legs sticking out and everything. Like, it's just naming makes a big difference. So if you hate spiders, just name your spiders. Because, you know, they're good. They're good. They get rid of a lot of bugs and stuff. So That's always good advice. Larry. Okay. <laughs> I I want to know more about Larry. So this season he's gotten just, bigger. Yeah, yeah. You're just gonna have to keep us updated on Larry the Spider. I will. He's mm. definitely gotten bigger because he's been shedding his exoskeleton and stuff. So all right, your obsession. Okay, so here's my obsession. A couple of days ago, I went to hear the New York Phil, and what did they play? 
Well, they played the entire score while projecting the movie in the background of The Empire Strikes Back. Awesome. And it reminded me how much I love John Williams. So <laughs> that's my obsession is John Williams. I think he's frankly one of the best composers alive now. Mm-hmm. And I think his music is like the equivalent of what probably Wagner was when he was alive. Oh, really? Yeah, I, I, I just feel like he's a brilliant composer. He did brilliant. Uh-huh. He's still doing brilliant work. And, uh, How old is he? He's, I don't know. He might be like in his 80s. So the dog just got fed right now. So there's a lot of extraneous noise mm. on my audio. But um, yeah, John Williams. You know, I've, I'm obsessed with the whole idea of telling this story. And man, yeah. does his music tell a story. And I think it's just really brilliant, really smart music that I'm glad more musicians are realizing how good he is. I yeah, think... instead of using that cop out of, oh, he's so derivative. It's like, that's not a bad thing. That's not a bad like... thing, no. And it's not, it's, or even just getting rid of the idea that film music is somehow less serious than other types of music. Right. So, yeah. Well, I think, I think the problem with film music is that it comes second to the picture, to the moving image. And so I think that's why people poo-poo it. But you know what? You don't have a complete story without it. Like it No. Really, it's the emotional crescendo of it that really gets you. You don't cry because of the image. You cry because of the music. At oh. least for me. <laughs> well, yeah. Or, I mean, collaboration that the image and the music is working together. But I would also argue that people have been writing film music since before film, right? Because right. there's incidental music for plays that we play now as concert music, right? Yeah, our ballets. And what is, are, yeah. yeah, and ballets, exactly. Ballet was going to be my next thing, is that ballet is pretty much the same thing. So, yeah. Um, yeah, John Williams. He's probably the best film composer and probably one of the best composers that uh, ever lived. So. Yeah, I mean, I remember when I talked to you at intermission of that show, you mm-hmm. were like a giddy little schoolboy. Like, you were just so happy. It was You're great. like, I can't believe what I did. Oh, my God. <laughs> so, yeah. I think we should try a new way of signing off the season. What do you think, Jeanette? Yes. Okay. Um, well, first... Clinking? Well, no. I think uh, what we should do is first tell people where to find us. And uh, let's just uh, end with uh, awkward silence. How about we end with insults? Oh, we could end with insults. Oh, wait. I don't have a big repertoire. Okay. So here, let's try this. Okay. All right. That brings us to the end of this episode. But tune in next week. In the meantime, check us out at somanywrongnotes.com and on our Facebook page, So Many Wrong Notes. Yeah. Thanks for listening. Yeah. 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 Mm. Oh, yes, I forgot. We have Twitter and Instagram as well. Same name. So. So. Did you just fart? Maybe. You know, I'm really glad I can't smell it right now. <laughs>